He was talking a lot about the humility that's coming from God in the midst of this place. And how people from outside are noticing it even though we might not because we're in the midst of it. So it just seems like, hey, God's doing some cool stuff and we're changing. But I think uh, that's, that is a key work that God's been doing. Since this thing started, I've been starting reading, studying, looking back in history, seeing what like God's outpourings look like, renewal, revival. And um, I've just continually, even before I started reading, kept coming back to Hut and uh, Zinzendorf. And so I started digging in deeper and reading and watching documentaries and studying and really hearing the depth of this man's life, uh, which has been really cool. Um, one of the documentaries about him is titled The Rich Young Ruler Who Said Yes. And it really encapsulates who this man was, right? And the humility that he had early on. So this guy's name uh, was Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He was German. And uh, he was a count. But he wasn't just any count. He was one of the 12 um, pillars of the German Empire at the time. The 12 counts of the land served directly the emperor. And he was the 22nd of his line, meaning that the wealth and empire of the Zinzendorf family had endured for 22 generations. That's 22 generations of land and wealth that have built up and that was Zinzendorf's to inherit. And uh, at six years old, he felt this real call to pursue God at six. At six years old, he memorized Luther's small catechism. Um, for those of you who don't understand that, the small catechism was anything but small. It was, it was like memorizing most of the New Testament in size. Okay? And it was, he was six. So he had this real zeal, um, and he wanted to go on when he got older to become a minister, but it was frowned upon because the expectation was he would become the next count, so he needed to develop his political networks and relationships and go to the big high parties and stuff like that. In a nutshell, guys, what happened was he encountered persecuted people. There was a, a group of Christians that were being persecuted, um, under the Reformation guidelines and stuff, and they eventually become known as the Moravians. And he invites them to come stay on his land. Now, he's a count. And I know we don't have any gauge for that here in America because um, we don't have those type of systems and stuff, but a count would have had land up to the size of, of like Rhode Island sometimes, right? Like the bigger counts. Like these guys had huge lands and huge manors and multiple homes and lands and manors and he owned all this and he he opened it up to these people to come and they came and they started to live there with him anyway he eventually gets so encountered by god that he gives up his his uh pursuit of the count lifestyle to all the disappointment of his family and friends and everything and just gives himself to the ministry and to the kingdom and to the work and establishes a community on his property and it becomes known as Hut. And we've learned a lot about this, how there was a hundred years of unbroken 24-7 prayer established there. 
And I was like, that's the coolest thing. I want to look up how and what that was about. Because what I knew of Zinzendorf was that he was all about kind of making Christ famous. That was his drive. So I was like, these two don't seem, like they seem like two major things. How they work together, I didn't understand. So I started reading and listen to, listen to what happened, okay? Zinzendorf was passionate. When I say passion, I mean passionate about truth. And that's why he was so on board with uh, these Christians that were coming and they were being persecuted from the Catholic Church, but also from parts of the Reformed Church. And he was bringing them in and saying, you need to be able to worship according to the spirit and truth and not be limited by these restrictions. So he sets them up and he's there and he begins to teach. And he's teaching them about the heart of God and, and um, he just was such a, a rebel for his time. Like, when I tell you at the time, women weren't allowed in ministry or leadership. And the two most influential people in his community, aside from him, were women. One of them was, became the countess. Eventually they married. And she ran the entire enterprise of Count von Zinzendorf's entire manor and estate and the ministry. She was the leading elder of the ministry. You can go into that and, and go deeper. It was actually one of the theological conflicts between him and John Wesley that caused Wesley to not stay there forever. Uh, so anyway, Zinzendorf is establishing this community and he wants to make sure that it is not a community that gets involved with all the theological debates that were causing all the disruptions. So he said, this community will not be a place for debate. If you have a debate, take it elsewhere. If you want to have a good conversation, discussion about truth, we're definitely going to do it, but we're going to do it according to scripture and in the context of prayer and fellowship. Well, that didn't stop people from having theological conflicts and debates, right? As anyone knows, it's just, it is what it is. You believe what you believe and you believe it's true because you believe it's true. Well, one time, he was out on a mission and he came back because he heard it had gotten intense. So he decided to institute communion in a real way. Like you said, that's it. We're going to have one huge Heron Hut communion gathering. We're going to commune. We're going to invite the, the Lord to come and be part. And we're going to take part and build unity. So they did this. And then what happened was God visited. They describe it. In, the, in his writings and the documentary that God came and settled in our midst and we could not but do anything but love each other deeply. Okay, and as you go in, they had a visitation from God during this communion service where God showed up, just turned the place upside down. They said they were overwhelmed, weeping, laughing, crying with this sense of deep love one for another. And it lasted for months where this place, kind of like what we're describing and what we've been experiencing here and what we've seen in history, where God visits, it changes everything at a core level, and then he resides and things rearrange and shape, and then things happen on another level. So what happened for Zinzendorf was this. This thing happened and it shifted the entire heartbeat of his community where now all they wanted to do was love God and love each other. And they began to think of new and uh, impactful ways to do that. One of them was to begin 
praying non-stop in order to get this minister to the Lord while he was present or accommodate God while he was there that's what they did the initial the thing that it looked like when they chose to do that was unbroken prayer and at first it started with gatherings so many people wanted to be a part of it and Zinzendorf eventually said hey this is awesome and we need to be about the work that God had originally given us as well and so he instituted basically a plan where everyone one or two people at a time would commit to pray for this one hour and they did it 24 hours seven days a week and it would just started Zinzendorf did not say this will go 100 years he just said this is what's gonna happen and so they did and then he began to focus on the missions he had been so focused on before but here's the part that I was like oh God like because I really felt like like there was like God was on me digging into the Zinzendorf thing Zinzendorf had been so passionate about missions he had already tried to reach certain parts of the the northern Africa places and and even had dreams of going to what they called the West Indies and it was just hard grinding no fruit so God visited they begin to accommodate God they begin to pray and then after this 24th thing had been instituted and been set and they had the thing going and going and other communities started coming in and joining the Heron Hut community and becoming part of the community their missions began to explode like explode like 300 people saved 500 people saved in all the places he was going with missionaries and sending his missionaries at this point he goes to one of these count gatherings because he's still the count and he meets a man from the West Indies who has a slave with him and because he's Count Zinzendorf he carried a lot of weight remember he was like one of the 12 guys directly below the Emperor so because he was Count Zinzendorf this man allowed Zinzendorf to talk to his slave which usually you wouldn't and Zinzendorf takes the slave and has deep conversations the slave begins to tell him about the situation and plight of his family back where he's from and Zinzendorf preaches the gospel to him and the guy gets saved and the guy gets saved and what he says remember he's a slave he says how do I bring this freedom back to my family and friends where I'm at we're slaves I want my fellow slaves family and friends to have this type of freedom don't let that slip your mind here what I'm saying his encounter with God his salvation moment his recognizing that Jesus set him free superseded the fact that he was physically in chains and a captive it was more important to him now that his family and friends would experience the freedom he was experiencing Christ than the freedom from chains Zinzendorf was so moved by this that he decided this is where my mission focus is going to shift to and this is where my prayer focus and my heart focus is going to shift and this was right around the same time guys that it was you know a little bit before 
like the, the abolishment movement began in England and then spread to America. And Zinzendorf becomes the first Protestant missionary. I know that sounds crazy, but because of the Reformation was about reforming an existing church and they, they weren't focused on missions, Zinzendorf was so focused on missions that he did this and he went and began to preach to his community about this mission thing that God is fueling them to do. So he does it and people in his community, two young men, hear it and they're struck to the core and they believe that God put it on their heart. So they began to go starting to reach the slaves as they could and they weren't allowed in. They couldn't reach them in any way, shape or form. They, they weren't allowed to bring the gospel to these people. So they come back and they say, we believe God wants us to sell ourselves to slavery so that we can become part and reach them. And they do. And it's because Zinzendorf had this vision for one, unity in his community. So it wouldn't be separated by debates on theological topics that were destroying the church outside in a whole. God responds because he says, this is the primary thing. We must love God and each other. They have a communion celebration and God shows up and establishes this love that then provokes them to want to accommodate God while he's there. It's the, the greatest thing they've experienced. And they do, and they do it by establishing prayer and worship to accommodate this. And then that fueled the greatest mission movement we have seen in the world since the book of Acts. It established a hundred years of unbroken prayer. It also established through Wesley, who was heavily influenced by there and wanted to stay. And his brother Charles Wesley did stay his entire life. His brother Charles Wesley never left, was part of the Heron Hutt community till he died. Okay? But John Wesley felt burdened with the, the mission and the, the conflict he experienced was enough to propel him. He goes out and establishes a movement based. This is the part that blew me away. John Wesley established a hundred years of planting church, I mean, a church a day for a hundred years through the Methodist movement. And the Methodist movement was centered around these concepts called holy clubs, holiness clubs. It just meant small groups of believers that would gather together and be the church. Well, what I realized was he literally hijacked Zinzendorf's model of what Zinzendorf referred to, I believe it was spirit clubs. It was small groups of people who come together to confess, commune, pray, and share life together. And so Wesley comes out with the Methodist movement, which is really the Zinzendorf movement, and it spawns a hundred years of church planting. This is how God turned the world upside down because in the midst of that, there is a great awakening that happens both in America, where Zinzendorf and Wesley both end up, and in England, where Zinzendorf and Wesley both started. To this day, Zinzendorf and his communities exist right now. You can go over there and be part of the Moravian movement. You can go to Pennsylvania or New Jersey and see still two, three hundred years later, the fruit of the Zinzendorf missions and movement. And it was all started by a move of God that happened in a community that genuinely was seeking God, but couldn't couldn't make anything happen in their own strength. But they really did love the Lord and were going after God and God visits and things change. And then from that place, the Great Commission sees an expression it had not seen since Acts. And I'm saying this because this has been a lot of the conversations in our community. Like, like some people are concerned that, hey, we were, we were doing so well moving towards 
the mission of the church and the Great Commission and establishing churches and believers in the faith. And that now it looks like we're going right back to that charismatic stuff that we kind of grew out of. And the concern was that what would suffer would be the commission and command of Christ in scriptures to go and make disciples, baptize them, train them and establish churches and expand the gospel. And then there's those who came from this, who kind of moved on from that place begrudgingly because they're like, no, this is, it's all about just the, the worship and the prayer and seeing the fruit of missions. And I'm seeing in Zinzendorf's life and in his example, we see the two marry together in the same way Acts did to produce a great awakening. The great awakening brought in souls that were then baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were taught everything Jesus taught them to obey. Like, this is what happened. It just filled my heart with hope, expectation, and belief. And I'm saying that was what was key. And I was like, this is great. Zinzendorf was awesome, but he is not the inspired word of God. So let me see if this is biblical. <laughs> so it... I don't know if you guys, for those of you guys who are familiar enough with the word, you know it didn't take long in looking in the scripture to see if this was biblical. Right? Like, I mean, this is the scripture. This is it. When you look, another thing, one of the biographers was quoting Zinzendorf and Zinzendorf's daughter, I believe, who described the outpouring of God and they were comparing it to modern day outpourings. And they said, it was like Pentecost, and he said, but maybe a more modern understanding, Azusa Street, right, where there was an outpouring and an infilling of the Holy Spirit, but the manifestation of it wasn't gifts, it was love. It was love for God and his people, right? Now, Zinzendorf was a big gifts guy. Uh, let me rephrase that, because when I say big gifts in our context, we think, we think differently. He fully believed and supported in the gifts for today. That's, that's how I'd put it. He believed God healed. He believed God would, he believed in prophecy, but he was just such a truth guy. This is the guy who said, this was his life model, and, and it's so impactful because when you know who he was, he was Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, the Count. Do you understand? Like, his whole life was set. He didn't have to do a thing. From the time he was born till the die he, time he died, he would have been one of the richest, most wealthy people on the planet with everything he would ever want. Servants, his servants had servants. Do you understand? Like, he was wealthy beyond what most of us can understand. And this man, when he confronted the value and the worth of Christ, considered all of that worthless when compared to what Christ had done for him and what he was doing. I missed that part. He got saved, like when he, he didn't get saved, saved, but when he decided to fully commit his life to the mission of God on the earth and to Christ, he had gone to a, a art performance and there was a, an inscription under one of the art pieces that said it was about the cross of Christ and it said, Christ did this for you. What have you done for him? And he was struck to the heart by that and said, my life for you. And he gave it up. So listen, this is what, this is, what is so powerful. Zinzendorf, one of his 
best known quotes, which there's not a lot because he's somehow hidden in history, like no one knows about him, was this. This is what Zinzendorf said towards the, uh, the end of his life. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, that's easy enough for those of us who feel like that's what's going to happen to us anyway, right? Like, we're like, we're lucky if our family remembers us two generations from now, right? But this was Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, the 22nd generation representative of an ancient noble family and bloodline that helped rule over the empire, the, the English, British, German empire that was shifting at that time. And he said, I gave all that up and I am content to preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. And guys, he backed it up with his life. Do you know this man who was one of the richest people in his, in his nation died bankrupt because he spent every penny he had and then some fueling the missions to England, Africa, and the Americas. He didn't just fuel them. He supported every person who came to live in his community of Hut. He started a second community that modeled after Hut to reproduce it. And he fully funded both and every person that came to live there. And he gave them plots of land to grow and to farm and to produce. And then when he, planned, when he sent missions, he fund, fully funded every missionary that he sent to establish a new community. This was the beautiful part, guys, that I was like, man, this makes my heart leap. He didn't just send missionaries to build orphanages and help poor people. He sent the missionaries to go and establish new heron huts because he believed people needed to see a living demonstration of this love of Christ for them to be able to understand what you're preaching. And so he sent missionaries to establish new communities of Christ, what we would call churches, right? So that from there, they could preach the gospel and bring them into something and demonstrate it. And he fully funded every single one of them with his own personal money. He built buildings at every new location that he established. He built a manor for people to be able to come and live and grounds and everything. And he funded it. And towards the end of his life, he had run out of his personal money. And at this point, I remember the documentary guy, he said this. At this point, most people would have drawn back to regroup and try to see what can they do. And he said, Zinzendorf did the opposite. He redoubled his efforts and he began to take out loans on credit because his name was Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. And everyone would say yes to him. There was no no. You couldn't say no to Count Zinzendorf. And so he began to take out credit to build these things and fund missionaries. And he died bankrupt. This man who said, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. He gave every single cent that he had, plus some. He gave up his name, his place, his reputation. This is why I love the title, The Rich Young Ruler Who Said Yes When Christ Called. 
You contrast that with the biblical story of the one who went away sorrowful because he had many possessions, yet this man went away joyfully happy to give up his possessions because he was struck to the heart by that one quote that said, Christ did this for you, what will you do for him? And I think all that is to say this, that I, I wanted to do that because uh, I wanted to, to inspire. I wanted to set forth vision for what God has done in the recent past and reason to hope and believe that God wants to do it again and more so and that he will do it again and more so and that he has probably attempted to do this more so with different groups that just didn't know how to respond or respond correctly. And here we are and God is doing something so real, so undeniable, so tangible in a place that was so hungry and focused on expanding the kingdom of God and his mission through church planting and establishing and reproduction. We are living under a promise from God prophetically for land, wealth, and souls. And as we've understood this promise, we've understood it as land and wealth being the means and the fuel for the souls. That as God brings land and the wealth, it will be in preparation for the big influx of the harvest and souls. And we've been preparing for that and we've been ready, but every time we're like, God, this is slow work. This is grinding. We can't get enough leaders to handle what we have now. So we've been like, God, you have to do something because we tried, we've tried so many things, strategies, plans. Let's just try sending people, let's just try putting people in leadership and see if they grow into it. And we're like, oh, that's not working out. All right, well, let's pull back. Let's, let's only put well-established people in place. Well, now we don't even have enough for who we have. Well, let's try putting people out there and see if they'll grow into it again. And it's just as back and forth. And now our hope is in this, that God is pouring out and he will provide the laborers for the harvest. As we pray, as we accommodate him, as we say, not our will, God, but yours be done. Not our way, God, but yours be done. But, but show us, because we don't know. And here we are. And so what I'm saying, that thing, what Sean was saying, his mom mentioned, I think, is at the heartbeat of what God's doing. She's recognizing this shift in the people of God, in the people who are coming to pray. Their prayers are shifting as they behold God in his presence and they, they are being transformed into the image of the one they're beholding. The one who said, I am meek and lowly in spirit and heart. Come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. This is his self-testimony about himself. And I love, the, I love the word meekness because meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. And that marks Christ, that he was the fullness of God. The fullness of God dwelling bodily in Christ, and he was under full control. At no point did he fail the test or, or fall back on his divinity in order to accomplish the work he was set. Meekness was the mark of Christ on the earth. And so what I've seen here is this, because we, we Luke gave uh, shared a some insight and even a word maybe on, on repentance. And I think it's just so powerful, but it's this, this is what I wanted to share in closing because this is where I do think we're at. We're still in this place of repentance, 
but please don't misunderstand the word. Repentance is not you feeling so bad about yourself that you have to come up and weep and cry until you feel better. That you spiritually flog yourself or that you're so ashamed and guilt-ridden with yourself that you must come and just make, make amends. You can't make amends. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to make amends. That's the whole point of the gospel, right? Church, that's the whole point of the gospel is that Christ has done it and now he's saying, come freely receive it. And this idea of biblical repentance uh, can have sorrow sometimes. Like I feel very sorrowful when I realize I've wasted time or life or done things wrong that, that could have been done better and that God has revealed it to me. I feel sorrowful about that. And I often feel like apologizing, saying sorry. But what I never feel like doing any longer, at least for as long as I can remember, is trying to make it right. Understand, like repentance isn't about you trying to fix the problems that you're apologizing for. And this, man, I'm sorry, guys. This is all over the place. I can go for days, but I'm not going to. Here's the point. Repentance does not look like what most people think it looks like. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't say to people who healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons in his name, depart from me. But he did, and he does, and he, he warns us of that. He says, many people will come to me saying, Lord, Lord. And the Greek word being used there means Lord. It does. It means ruler, master. These people are acknowledging and recognizing God as their master. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, we did all these things and we did it in your name. And he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you rebels, you rebellious ones, depending on the translation you use. It's all the same thing. It's those who who lived and worked outside of the lines of God, of the teachings of the laws, whatever term you want to use it. Lawlessness means those who did not live according to the law of Christ. They did it for their own reasons and their own strength. And that ties together with so many different passages, right? Like 1 Corinthians is all about that. Hey, you can give your body to be burned. You can speak with the tongue of men and angels. But if you don't have love, then it's worthless, it's useless, it's a clanging gong. When we get to repentance, this is what I think changes here for that. When we understand that repentance is not feeling sorry for what you did wrong, it's changing the way you understand what you previously understood. Do you understand? This is why scripture teaches that there is no cross for those who love their sin. The cross isn't available for people who still love their sin. It requires a repenting of those things you love. It requires a changing of your allegiance. It requires a cutting off of and getting rid of the things your affections were previously rooted in. It is a genuine death. You understand? The cross doesn't reform people, it crucifies them. It kills them, and repentance is the key to that. 
you must repent. Believe, repent, and be saved. And with this repentance here comes the humility to do so. That's been my experience here, and this is what I want to wrap it up in. I've been talking to a few people over the last weeks and, and just talking to them and saying, like, man, that's also been my experience. But this, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I want you to grasp that. Because this is what I, what I think we, we're going to go into here with prayer and stuff. It, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Paul says it like this. He says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not realizing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? What does that mean? This is what it means for me. I have not lived my life in gross sin, but I liken it more to the, the weights that so easily ensnare you or hold you down or steal your time or divide your attention or divide your affections or all these things. And you can rationalize and reason and they might even be good things. And they may have started out as a good thing, but they've become less than a good thing now and they take away from the God things. But you're not letting go of that. You're not shifting your mind from it. Instead, you're, you're appeasing it. You're, you're, you're living in that midst of split attention, split affection. There's a reason why Paul in Corinthians 7 tells married people, giving them advice, saying, listen, even married people now should live as if you're not. He wasn't saying neglect your family. That's not what he was saying. But he was talking about your heart, focus, and attention no longer divided. Everything to Christ. And when Christ because you're doing it to Christ, Christ then redirects your affections to your wife and your children as needed. But it is unto Christ instead of some unto Christ and some unto your family. I hope that makes sense. Anyway, the, it's this idea that the kindness of God is leading us to repentance. And for me, it's been God has touched on me or the Holy Spirit over the last couple years. Hey, what do you think about this, Steve? And I'd be like, I think it's really good and I like it. Why? Oh, no, no reason. Just want you to think about it for a little bit. Like, okay, I thought about it. I can make it work, God. I can do it. I can fit this in here while still doing my stuff. I'm telling you, I can. I'll just stay up later. I'll stay up later. I'll make more time. But, you know, and I'll just, I'll, I'll exchange some sleep so that I can have time to do this. Okay. Maybe a year later, same thing. Maybe a year later, same thing. And it's just like, I'm like, okay, all right. I, I, I have it handled already. Like we've talked about this. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Well, when God poured out on this, when he poured out here, and this is what I'm saying. Let, let me draw the parallel real quick that I was seeing. In Zinzendorf, they were already trying to live in unity. They were already trying not to allow divisions to happen, theological debate and splits to cause little rifts and little divisions as they should. They were already trying to do that. They were doing the best they could. They were trying to love each other genuinely, sacrificially, right? That's the idea, not, not affect, not, they didn't need to give each other more hugs more often. That wasn't the goal. It was to serve each other well and to view each other rightly and to love each other. They were doing that already, but there was another level they weren't getting to and Zinzendorf kept seeing that and kept saying, guys, enough, we need to love each other. And then he tries by saying, we're having a communion meal, we're all coming together, we're just gonna love each other no matter what. In their strength and effort, 
And I've done that myself multiple times. I've like fasted it, right? Knowing I'm coming back to it though. And when God poured out here, like he did in Heron Hut, God, God, this is the only way to describe it. He turned from checking in on me to relentlessly hunting me down over this thing right relentless like i couldn't escape it sometimes i felt like i couldn't breathe in the seat because the weight of him on me and it felt it felt torturous it felt wrong and what i've recognized after because man there's so much here but like in the last five six years i was set free from a stronghold that literally had me convinced that god didn't love me in my heart, I was convinced of that, not in my mind. In my mind, I was like, of course God loves me. But in my heart, I lived as if I needed to earn his love and, and, and the favor of him and others. And God had set me free from that probably about four, four and a half years now. I think my time's awful. So in that context here, God is hounding me and it's brutal. And I am like squirming and fighting and I, I feel suffocated, feel like I can't breathe. Sometimes I'd just be sitting there and worship and have to go because I wasn't breathing, because I was stressing and straining and wrestling with God. And over the last couple of weeks, what I feel like God showed me was like, this was such a demonstration of God's love for me. His tormenting me, his relentless not letting go and pressing and forcing me to give up something I genuinely loved to do and enjoyed and a community of people I genuinely loved being part of. It felt like a forcing and it was a death. But when the death happened, I was able to see it was the kindness of God that led me relentlessly, that put me in the headlock and dragged me to it until I experienced the goodness of God that I could not see or understand from where I was. It is that type of kindness that is leading us to a place of repentance. What did this repentance look like? I was not weeping and sorrowful like I had done some awful thing. No, it wasn't that. It was like, it was more so like, I just have to face truth. I have to face truth like this is true. I can't justify, I can't rationalize it anymore. And I need to shift the way I'm understanding this. I need to shift the way I'm seeing this. And I need to cut this thing off and I need to die to it in order that my full attention and affection can be where I genuinely believe God's forcing me to put it and then do it without bitterness or resentment or spite. That type of submitting to the will and the heart of God was repentance. And I think what he's moving us to in this place is a wide sweeping repentance of how we have previously lived and understood our interactions with Christ and his people. How we have previously understood how we use our time and life and resources. Right? And if, never mind Christ, if we just come down to a human bar as an example and use Zinzendorf as an example of how he chose to use his life and time and resources then there's just, a, there's an example that sets a, a pretty good bar. But why? Because on the other side of this repentance is gonna be a church that literally lives and throbs and beats with the heart of God and sees these healings and salvations and baptisms increase exponentially because 
healings happen because the love of God is on the person. Now, I'm not making a theological statement on healing there. I'm just telling you, God heals because he loves people. God saves people because he loves people. This was Paul's entire admonishment to the church in Corinth. Chapter 12 was like, hey guys, I get it. There's so many gifts in the church and they are so good. They're so valuable. God gives each member a certain gift, a manifestation of the spirit so that when you come together, you become whole and you're the representation of God. And these are great and you should pursue these things and you should pursue this and hey the nose should value the ear and the eye should value the foot and and the knee should value the chest and you need all these things for it to be the body of christ but guys not everyone is this gift and not everyone is this gift and not everyone is this gift and not everyone has this gift so what i'm telling you this is what he says how he wraps up chapter 12. so what i'm telling you is guys desire the greater gifts I'm not saying it's bad to you understand it was this it was a church that was so in love they, they were so excited about the move of God and things were happening and he was admonishing them saying the gifts are awesome guys but you don't all have all the gifts so you don't have to make that happen and at the end he says this the gifts are great and they really do bless the body and the church will benefit with, through the gifts so I'm not telling you gifts are bad or wrong I'm telling you they're good and I'm telling you, don't even not des desire, desire, desire even the greater gifts. But let me show you a better way. That's how chapter 12 ends with those, those words. Let me show you a better way. And then the next chapter is 1 Corinthians 13, which most of us are familiar with, where it starts out by saying, if I speak with the tongue of, tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a... Uh, a, a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I were to give my body to be burned at the stake, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. And then he goes on to give a discourse about love and what it looks like and how valuable it is. And at the end, he says, guys, listen, I'm paraphrasing now for you guys. All the gifts are going to cease eventually. At some point, they will no longer be needed. They will end. But love will never end. Love is the eternal centerpiece, the root, the anchor to everything. You want to benefit the body? You want to see the church and the body grow? The gifts are good, but love is what does it. It's the gifts operating from the motivational point of love. And then chapter 13 goes into explaining to them what love looks like because they didn't get it. It suffers long, it's kind, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, it suffers long, it is faithful, it never ends. And he said, then he gives us the things that throughout his teachings he shows as marks of a mature church, right? He says, listen, there's faith, there's hope, and there's love. These three things are the marks of a mature church, of mature people. But the greatest of even these three things is love. And then he goes into chapter 14 right after that and explains to them how the purpose of gifts work, saying they are intended to edify and build up the church. So if you find yourself operating in a gift that's not doing that, just stop when you're gathered together because the goal is to love and edify and build up each other. Do you see the flow of what Paul's teaching is? And so when God begins to pour out here, it has to be rooted and grounded in this 
humble recognition, recognition of who God is and what he's done for us because that provokes love. We will love him because he first loves us. And then he says this to us, as you have been loved by me, love others. That's, that's scripture, that's just the process. And God is loving on us. He is visiting us because he, he has chosen to sovereignly. And he is loving on us and he is leading us into repentance through his kindness. He is visiting, he is present, he is healing people, he is saving people. People are getting baptized, people are getting rocked, people are getting realigned, they're repenting, they're acknowledging the goodness and the greatness of God, all because he loves us enough to do this for us. It is his great kindness that is leading us to this place where we can acknowledge this, repent, and be made more like him. And from that place, the wonders and the works of God will go, and they'll be awesome. But this has to be rooted and grounded in us first. This love of God, what he's doing in us and for us from this place, so much so that we will joyfully accept the gift of repentance and his kindness that is leading us to this. And we'll be able to dispel the shame and the embarrassment that might be trying to keep you from doing it. And instead, you repent before the Lord and say, I'm yours and I want this and I want to do this. And when that happens, we're going to see everything happen. It's going to explode. In the day of God's visitation and his power, the youth will volunteer freely, right? The people of God in general will volunteer freely. They will give it 24-7 will be easy to do because people are like, God, if this is what you're doing, I want to be part of it. Missions will be easy to do. We're going to have people coming up to us saying, we want this. I want to do this. And we're going to have to pray and seek God and say, is this right for them to do? Do they need more equipping? Do we send them now with a team? Whatever. Who knows? I don't know. I have great hope for it, though, because of what God's doing. And the word of God does not return void. It's promised to us that it accomplishes everything it was set out to do. Can you think of anything else God is trying to do right now? Like, why would he do what he's doing? It wasn't so that we could feel better about ourselves. It wasn't so that we could say, yeah, you see that? God's doing something here too. We're special. It's this place. And I believe here, when God gets us to this place of the church, when the momentum moves enough, where in a region, this type of repentance begins to happen. And again, I couldn't reiterate it enough times, the word meaning realigning your, your allegiance, realigning your loyalty, realigning your affection, realigning your priorities to make him first. That's when the church will be united under the, the, the leading of the Spirit and things will happen. So I want to just pray into that now for a little bit.